You're listening to the So What Podcast. And that's one of the best places in the New Testament to see that is 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he sort of takes the key Jewish monotheistic prayer, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he wraps, he wraps it around Jesus. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. On this episode, our cast discusses the meaning and the importance behind the Lordship of Jesus Christ. During our conversations, we lay out the intention behind the use of the Greek word kurios, meaning Lord, by the earliest Christians as seen throughout the entire New Testament. This radical acknowledgement of Christ as Lord transcends the common belief in Second Temple Judaism that the Messiah would be Yahweh himself, Emmanuel, our God with us. Well, before we jump into that discussion, I'd just like again to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, why not consider helping the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes? You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast. Let's head over to our discussion. Here we are in the next line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God's only Son, our Lord. And in our discussion today, we have Dave. Hey, everybody. Brad. Hey, guys. And Matt. Hello. You know, fellows, I'd like to point out before we begin that this creed is truly ecumenical. Remember, we had a Dr. Haken on a couple episodes ago, and he discussed how the creed has throughout history united Christians from various backgrounds and denominations. And as a testament to how true that is, here we sit, a few Reformed Baptist guys with a Methodist brother, all agreeing on the essentials of the Christian faith that we find here in the Apostles' Creed. We agree on this. We agree on this. Yeah, I, I just wanted to start with that because I think I think it's I think it proves the point, right? So um, when I'm reading that line, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. The first thing uh, that that pops out to me personally is God's only Son. What does that mean? I mean, when when we're when we're talking about it from a biblical perspective, can we frame that and and discuss what it, what is there a biblical theology of sonship and what does that mean? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, um, for something as essential as um, what we profess in the first line, you know, God the Father Almighty and and His Son, Jesus Christ, I mean, it it sort of gets to the fact that inherent in who God is, 
as God is his Trinitarian relationship as father and son. And th- though we see the son, you know, show up here in the, uh, the second line of the creed, uh, sonship in scripture um, finds its root in, in the beginning of Genesis, really. I mean, we see that in the, uh, in the genealogy presented in Luke chapter 3 that Adam is called the son of God. And, and as the son of God, his uh, progeny includes Jesus Christ. And so Adam, as the son of God, sort of builds as a pattern until we get to Israel, who God says through Moses to Pharaoh is his firstborn son. And then, and then that, the Adam to Israel connection expands in uh, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to be a father to the Davidic king, and the Davidic king will be his son. So I, I think there is, uh, Kyle, I think there is a, a, a pattern to that in Scripture, that the Son of God uh, has a special, unique relationship to him. It, it raises an interesting question for me that if you have all these Typically, when the average American Christian thinks Son of God, they think divinity of Christ, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be the exception in the Scriptures, um, because obviously Son of God wouldn't be referring to Adam's divinity, or David, or Solomon, or you know, or Israel, Israel as a nation. Yeah, Israel itself. So, so you have to maybe maybe you could help us understand when the Gospels refer to Jesus as Son of God. When Peter says in Matthew. Um, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Does he mean? Does he mean it sort of the way that it was used in the Old Testament, or does he mean it the way that it's used in the Creed? <laughs> so, if I could address that for a second, I have two things to say. Number one, I'm so glad Matt's with us. And for those who don't know, uh, Matt was originally cast uh, to replace James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader in the second installment of the Star Wars trilogy. So I'm really glad that he's here with us and talking and you can experience and feel his voice on your eardrums. Uh, The second thing I want to talk about is it's really interesting when we do look from the Old Testament talking about Adam and Israel being called the son of God. What's so funny and almost the inverse relationship is when Jesus comes on the scene, he takes on a moniker himself. And I think 38 times in the book of Matthew, he calls himself the son of man. Mm. He does. I don't think he calls himself son of God, does he? No, so, no, no. Other, yeah. No, that's yeah, that's something that's. It's just this inverse relationship that here God speaks of His people, right. His covenant, the people whom He loves with all of his, his heart and soul, and He and He's planning this deliverance for them and a new Exodus and and, and bringing them out of exile and, and all these things, and He was referring to them constantly as the Son of God. And then when He sends His Son, and we know Jesus to be the Son of God, He calls Himself the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. I do want to bring back to what Matt said. Jesus does uh, indicate that He views Himself as a Son of God. And, and and maybe comes close to even saying that flat out in, in John chapter 5. Uh, and uh, this is what he says in John 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until not now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I do think Jesus, um, Jesus' you know identity as the Son of God does does absolutely point to uh, to his deity, and the Jews understand that that much. You know, mm-hmm. that's why they want to kill him because mm-hmm. they understood that him being the Son of God, being God's Son, meant that he was equal with God. So yeah, I absolutely think when we profess this in the creed that we're we're talking about Jesus as God, the Son of God. So I think that when we when we see this. Uh, 
claim to deity there in, in John 5, we, we understand that this is exactly what we mean when we profess in the creed that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. But as the Son of God, He's the object of the Father's love. He has a, an, a unique, intimate relationship with Him. Um, so much so that, that by our union with him, that that becomes true of us, you know, that, that we're sons of God now, that God has placed his love on us in Christ. I think it's also helpful to, kind of, what John's gospel tends to be rather more explicit mm-hmm. in yeah. the way that it talks about Jonathan the Jonathan Page in Southern says that John is the gospel for dummies. And then the first <laughs> read and the second time, you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's so deep. Yeah. But, but in Mark's gospel, you get, um, just in Mark 2, you have... Jesus healing the paralytic and his contemporary. So they, so they bring the guy in through the roof and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the opponents, the scribes there say, only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is basically? Which was raising the question about identity and authority. What's, who is he and how, why does he think he can do this? And then his response to them is so that you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins, which is authority that we agree belongs only to God. He says, you know, take up your mat and walk. So you have sort of an implicit claim, mm-hmm. I think, right. to deity in Mark 2, mm-hmm. which if that's our earliest gospel, um, you know, you have... How dare you assert very, Mark in priority <laughs> in our... If, if that's the earliest gospel, you know, at the very least, it, it, Mark doesn't just see Jesus as, you know, I, I would, I would want to reject the argument that say you have, well, the synoptics have sort of a very human Jesus right. and John has right. a more divine Jesus right. because That's right. in the second chapter of Mark, you have Jesus insisting that he has authority to do something that only God can do. And That's so right. it, just in terms of the narrative, it's almost really more um, potent in that mm-hmm. he's like, you know, Dr. Dennis Kinlaw likes to say, um, you know, they say only God can forgive sins. And he says, it's not in the text, but I'm pretty sure it happened that Jesus kind of winked at them at that moment and said, <laughs> yeah. take up your mat and walk. <laughs> so. You know, p- picking back that thought and moving into maybe another area that we hope to discuss in our time together in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, there's this haunting passage, you know, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of, and here we have the personal pronoun being used as a possessive relationship with the father, the one who does the will of my father. And that's not common uh, speak in the first century to speak of God. I mean, even think how Jesus taught people to pray. Uh, the, he teaches them to pray our father, but Jesus claims a personal relationship, a personal possession of my father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name? Did we not cast out demons? And we know this passage and ends with, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. This passage is, I think, for me, you know, you went to Mark 2, and that's huge, and and, and Brad brought up John, and this is one of the first places my mind goes for proving the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God. And, and the reason being is, is I see three clear things happening in this passage. The first, uh, Jesus uh, is claiming to be the, the, the eschatological judge, the one to whom all will give an account to. And if he's the one who's passing judgment, he's seated in that place of authority to make, and only God is the judge. Mm-hmm. I mean, here at People of Mars Hill Church, we're in the book of Daniel, and Daniel's name is Yahweh is my judge. All of Israel understood that it's Yahweh's place. He's seated. He's the one who holds the divine counsels. And in Matthew 7, here you have the God-man speaking and saying, I'm going to be the one you will give an account to. All account will be me. The second thing I see is he claims a personal relationship with the Father, as as we've mentioned. And the third thing is 
Twice in this passage, he says, he refers to himself in the third person as Lord, Lord. That's right. Yeah. And the Lord passage there. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. And 19 times in the Septuagint, Lord, Lord appears. And every time it's talking about the Lord God, Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reality is here you have Jesus, the God man, who says, not everyone who says to me, he's the judge who has a personal relationship with the Father, the Son of God, Lord, Lord, and they're calling him Yahweh. Mm -hmm. He's using the title that's been explicitly reserved for God to himself and saying everyone will give yeah. an account to me. And I, and I think that's huge. It, it can be lost on us today because we're so used to calling Jesus Lord, right? But it's not just in the Gospels, is it? It's, it's all throughout the New Testament, especially with the epistles. And so when you're looking at that term's use, the way it was used in Second Temple Judaism all throughout the Old Testament, bringing into the first century and the early church, and even here in the Creed, when we say our Lord, uh, I think there's some subversiveness there, like we talked about last week with, uh, you know, Caesar's not our Lord, God is our Lord. But here we have specifically Jesus Christ is our Lord, to be specific, not only the Father, but the Son as well. Uh, so I, I think that gets us into that conversation. What is that word? Uh, how, how in, I mean, how from a first century Pharisaical, Sadduceical perspective, how blasphemous was it for Jesus to call himself Lord? Uh, yeah, that's, it's a, a really important question. So just a little, a little bit. We've already said that in the, the Greek Old Testament, kurios, the Greek word for Lord is the translation for the divine name for Yahweh. Um, and so you had in the Second Temple period some Jewish groups that re refused to call the emperor Kyrios, mm -hmm. um, precisely because they had no king, no lord, but but Yahweh. Mm -hmm. um, so the the significance of the term is demonstrated in that at least some some folks in that period would not use it for anyone but the Creator God, who made all things, who made covenant with them through Abraham, and there they are His people. Right? They won't let. A human being use that title. Um, so to have Jesus come on the scene and use that for himself says a lot about how he understands himself. Mm. But then to have the early Christians assent to that term mm -hmm. and use it of him is um, says a lot about how they see uh, his relationship to their to their God, to Yahweh, Lord. And that's one of the best places in the New Testament to see that is 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Paul takes um, the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he sort of takes the key Jewish monotheistic prayer Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he wraps Je he wraps it around Jesus, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and attributes that language. God is God alone, and he takes Jesus and puts it right in the middle. So I think uh, Tom Wright talks about Christological monotheism mm -hmm. when he talks about this passage, and I think that's helpful. That you know, monotheism is redefined around Jesus. Um, and so when we talk about Jesus Christ, our Lord, he is embodying the presence of the one God mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. that. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it, so you, you have not only Jesus and the, and the gospel authors, um, 
just to summarize quickly thus far, not only Jesus and the gospel author is referring to Christ as Kyrios, that same title attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, but that that bleeds over into the New Testament, ultimately into the early church believers or the early early Christian believers, and then into the creed we find it today, uh, the significance behind that, our Lord. And what I think is really interesting is um, one of the things that uh, is is most interesting to me are new religious movements and, and uh, most famously uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and their translation of Scripture. And they have a, a Bible translation called the New World Translation. And the reason that, um, among other things, they came up with the translation is because uh, they, they, from their perspective, reinsert the title Jehovah, the name Jehovah, into the Bible. Um, they accuse uh, Orthodox Christians is removing it for dubious reasons. We just didn't want to see the name of uh, God's proper personal name throughout Scripture for whatever reason. What's interesting to me, however, is that uh, when you get to this term, kyrios, because it so closely relates Jesus to Yahweh, ontologically, and that's, that's incompatible with Jehovah's Witness theology. They believe that Jesus was created. They, they don't know really what to do with verses like Romans 10.13 that says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Kyrios, will be saved. The funny thing is, Paul is appropriating that from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, which says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word Lord is Yahweh. And so you see in Romans chapter 10, Paul is explicitly associating Jesus Christ with Yahweh of the Old Testament in a way that's mysterious, mm-hmm. but one that you can't deny nonetheless. There's another point I'd like to make, if, if I could here, um, not to stay too long on this point, but if we, if we think about Philippians 2, um, which I know we'll, would, would kind of go in line with what we're going to talk about later in the virginal conception, but when we talk about you know Christ, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh, humbling himself, uh, being a, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men— He humbles himself, becoming obedient at the point of death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're not setting up uh, to say maybe like the Jehovah's Witnesses would, that to, to profess Jesus as Lord takes away the honor that's only due to Jehovah or something, but that we're saying that professing Jesus as the Christ and praising him as such gives glory to God the Father. These aren't mutually exclusive, but but by praising him, we are glorifying God the Father. Yeah, I like that. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, the name that we're talking about, that is my name, and I will not yield or share my glory to another or my praises to an idol. So God is a God who uh, we, we talked about. If he is almighty God who created all things, and Paul in Acts 17 uses that to say that because God is the creator of all things, uh, the impetus for all creation to worship him is rooted in the fact that he is the creator and we are the created. And this God, the Lord, says that he will share his glory with no other. Mm-hmm. So all worship belongs to God alone. And yet, when we follow through the progression of the scriptures, we know that scripture is clear that God alone is to be worshipped. It's all in the laws. And angels and men, constantly we see throughout scripture, they refuse the worship because only God, the infinite, eternal creator, is worthy of that worship. Mm -hmm. Jesus knows that God alone is to be worshipped. We see that in Matthew 4.10, right? Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Right? He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And yet... 
In Matthew 2, 11, 21, 9 through 16, 28, 9 and 10, uh, John 9, 35 through 39, Jesus Christ receives the worship offered him, right? I mean, yeah. even we go to the Magi, they came to worship him. They tell Herod that. And then, uh, as if that's not provocative enough, Christ affirmed that he ought to be honored and glorified with the Father in John 5. That's pretty... Hefty. Uh, yeah, hefty. It's getting <laughs> hairy stuff. And then in Hebrews 1, 6, here you have God commanding all the angels to worship him. How do we reconcile that with what we just read in Isaiah? And then the ultimate, what Brad's quoting in Philippians 2 and then Revelations 5 and 8, one day everyone will worship Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, um, just really quickly, the, the, the point that I get sometimes from, let's, let's say, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, because this is, this is a sticking point for them. Um, well, it, it isn't worship that Jesus is receiving. It's honor or it's uh, veneration or it's praise. Um, and Which is all the same thing. Right. It, 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 <laughs> honestly, it really is. But, but what, I, what I would say is, is, okay, go back to the words that are being described for worship. You have this Greek word proskuneo. In Matthew 14, after Jesus silences the, the, the boat, or I'm sorry, silences the boat, silences the storm. You be quiet, boat. You quiet down. It's so loud, the engine. After he, he silences the storm, the disciples proskuneo before him. That's right. Which is the same word that we see the saints in Revelation, uh, in, the, in the, the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping Jesus for all eternity. There's, there's no ambiguity there. Interestingly, in that passage, um, the stilling of the storm. Right, so in, in Second Temple Judaism, the sea in, represents evil, right? Yeah, chaos. Um, and in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the one who tramples on it. That's right. Right. Um, when the sea is in the way of his people, you get they're stuck between the Egyptians and the sea. He pushes it back, and um, so they worship him there because mm -hmm. they see him doing something only Yahweh does. Right. Right. Namely, he has authority over the evil powers that the sea symbolize. So I think if if I may also raise the the so what question. If I may be so bold. How dare um, you? Yeah. <laughs> the, lordship, the Lordship of Jesus, it's about uniqueness. It's about his relationship uh, with the Father and a lot of these things. But it's also about um, his authority over the church, mm. which is something we haven't quite talked about. Um, mm. and, and one of the, not just authority over and within the church, but for the church in mission, right? So in Matthew 28, uh, right after the disciples worship Jesus, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has this claim to cosmic authority, and that's the causal basis for the commission, for the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. So I, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go disciple the nations and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So um, even though the, the specific language of curios isn't there, you still have this universal cosmic claim to authority and the expectation that everyone on the face of the planet does what he says. Mm -hmm. and, right. the, and the church's vocation is to instruct every person on the face of the planet to learn to do what Jesus says to do. Um, so we have our, our, our missional authority comes straight from the doctrine of the Lordship of Jesus. Um, we are authorized to cross borders. We're authorized to go to our neighbors. We're authorized... Um, to go into forbidden, you know, closed countries, precisely because uh, the one who sends us is Lord of heaven and earth. And Matt, that's a that's a great point because to go back to the line itself, it says, "I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord." That's not just an intellectual assent to He is the Messiah. 
he is God's only son. There's something deeper behind what it means to believe in Christ, is there not? I mean, and, and, and what is that belief? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, th- I find it helpful here to remember that the creed is not just sort of a checklist of, you know, here are the things you need to believe to be a good, a good Christian boy or girl. Um, all of us, I think, by and large, the average person experiences the creed in the context of worship. Mm. Right. So, so we gather for corporate worship on the Lord's Day and we profess this ancient faith that unites us with the church across the ages and across uh, geography. Um, and so it's, an, it's, it's a behavior in that way, right? And this is where I think uh, Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith's work is very helpful, uh, where he talks about the formative power of liturgy, right? So um, all of life is liturgical. Um, you know, it's football season, right? So on Saturdays, we all put on our <laughs> liturgical right. colors and we go to the temple. Our guard. The parking lots are always <laughs> full. And um, we have, uh, we sing glory, glory to old Auburn, right? So we even stole the doxology and take it to the stadium. And um, we pay our tithes and, and much, much more. Um, and we eat the, 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 the holy feast there of hot dogs and hamburgers. And, you know, so, so it's all very ritualistic in a lot of ways. And so Smith would say that all of life is like that. Everything is that way, and it's formative. Whatever you give yourself to liturgically shapes your sensibilities, your desires, your affections, and things like that. And so the creed for us ought not just be sort of a checklist of mental assent. It needs to be a formative practice where when we say this in the context of worship with the local church, um, it makes us into certain kinds of people Namely, people who believe in God the Father Almighty and mm. Jesus Christ, His mm-hmm. only Son. And the reality is, you have to do something with Jesus. And mm-hmm. almost every religion in the world does something with Him, whether He's just a prophet or a good teacher or a reincarnation of Vishnu or the angel Michael. You have to do something with Him. And, you know, the famous Lewis quip is he creates the trilemma, right? Originally it was he's either mad, he's bad, or he's God. And then it eventually became he's either the lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And uh, interestingly enough, you can kind of see this progression. I'm not saying this is necessarily where Lewis derived it from, but you can see the same progression of lunatic, liar, and Lord in Mark 3 when Jesus is going and he's in his hometown and the crowds are gathering and his family tries to draw him in. And in Mark 3.21, his family goes out and says he's out of his mind. <laughs> they're trying to bring him home. And they're claiming that he's a lunatic. And then the next scene you see is here come these scribes. And they're saying he's claiming to do these things by God's power. But he's not. He's actually doing it by Satan's power. He's the son of Satan. So the message he's proclaiming and the authority he's claiming to have is not true He's doing this by Satan's power. So they're, they're calling him a liar. And the reality is uh, Jesus draws a line in the sand. And, 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 and when we come to Christ, we have to make a decision. Is he who he says he mm-hmm. is? Is he lying? Is he just crazy? Are these just myths that are built up? But we have to come to a decision on who is Jesus Christ. And as Christians, uh, Christ followers, our identity, our DNA, in him we live and breathe and move. He is the line in the sand. Well, we've been discussing the fourth line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. 
And throughout the ages, this line has shaped and informed believers in Christ who understand him not simply as a renegade rabbi, nor a created being set to make things right, but as Kyrios, the Lord, our God incarnate, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And from this fact, Christ draws his authority for his disciples to go into the nations, baptizing and teaching the world about who he is and what he's done, because as Lord over all, all is his. Yet the fact remains that many do not acknowledge Christ's rightful place as Lord, leaving them, as C.S. Lewis contends, to understand him as either a liar or a lunatic. Well, we hope you join us next time when we discuss the next line of the creed, which is, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The So What Podcast is a production of the people of Mars Hill in Mobile, Alabama. For more information, visit POMH.org. Well, guys, here we find ourselves uh, at the second line of the Apostles' Creed, which is this, I believe in God the Father Almighty. That's not true at all. Well, you heard it here first. Cal does not believe in the God, the Father Almighty. <laughs> and, and, and John and tells us. The creed. It's yeah. actually the, this is the second line, though. You said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's not true at all. <laughs> that was demonic Tourette. Well, so, guess what? That sounds right. very tweetable. <laughs> all, right. all right. Here we what go. What is context? <laughs> what does context mean? That's not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, ready? Silence for three seconds. <laughs>